You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you guys so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little show, please consider helping us out by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Hello, everybody, and thanks for listening to the show. Before we get started, let me just put in another plug here for the Patreon page. Uh, If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, then uh, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island and sign up. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode. And uh, we got a notification that Mark has joined the patron. I thought he already was. Maybe it was some sort of crazy kind of slip-up thing. But Mark, if I just know you from the emails and you weren't a patron or whatever it is, welcome again, I think. Uh, Anyway, patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode. Um, So come and come and join us it's so much fun there's a new chat um uh software that patron put in there and it's great it's every tuesday night for the u.s broadcast i'm live on there steve our friend steve is on there all the time too a lot of people chiming in come on patrons come over and see us it's a great time it really is again folks go to patreon.com slash digging oak island to sign up and support the podcast um and remember it's only five bucks a month so, uh, you know, you cancel any time. And I want to welcome another member who I think I'm sure is new, and that is Megan. For those of you who listened last week, you'll remember about our friend Mike. Meg is Mike's daughter. Um, Mike was a listener, great friend of Oak Island. He passed away earlier this year. We talked about Mike quite a bit in the last podcast. He was a lover of the Oak Island mystery and was sending me some really incredibly well done research dealing with the gold content in the water, uh, the samples from the Money Pit area. Uh, so, Meg, thank you so much for for uh, for listening. Uh, thank you so much for <laughs> all those years that uh, that your dad uh, <laughs> wrote in <laughs> and <laughs> whatever role you might have played in formulating those theories. Thank you, because it was great fun reading with him. Uh, and once again, let me wish you and your family all the best. Mike was great fun to chat with, like I said, and uh, and we're going to miss him dearly here. So also, if you prefer to uh, make a one-time donation rather than a monthly thing, you could do that. Uh, go to Venmo and use the username at Dave McBride Music. I'm a musician by trade. That's sort of my virtual chip tip jar, so to speak. So uh, anyway, Dave, at Dave McBride Music via Venmo. Uh, it's totally up to you. <laughs> anyway, as always, let's start today's podcast with emails and messages from you, the listeners. We start with an email from Joe who writes about the different coins found last week by Gary Drayton. I said to people, I I think I said this in the podcast, if you have a theory as to how this can be a good thing, please let me know. And, uh, And Joe answered the call here. He writes, good morning, Dave. Regarding the different coins, I don't have the answer, but a few points and ideas. One, the Indian coin. Portugal set up a coastal trade route going around Africa to avoid the overland in the Middle East and the Mediterranean. With uh, which other powers controlled. See, for example, Goa in India. If I recall, it was Philip the Navigator who was the king involved in this. Was he the Portuguese king who saved the Templars? Uh, 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 I think, Joe, you mean uh, Prince Henry the Navigator? 
or Dom Henrique. Uh, he was the guy who sort of started what we refer to as the Age of Discovery. And yes, he was very connected to the Templars. In fact, I believe he was, uh, what's the phrase they use, a grandmaster uh, or something like that, of the Military Order of Christ. These were the former Templars who reformed right after the Templar persecution uh, and in Portugal. Anyway, Joe continues. The temple treasure is supposed to come from Holy Land looting, right? If so, that would explain Roman coins. Remember, Pontius Pilate and give to Rome what is Rome's from the gospel. <laughs> yes, I do. A medieval Indian coin could have easily found its way into a treasure chest with the others. Since the area was a crossroads, um, Arab tra sailors traveling from Persian Gulf to India. Of course, that all assumes that there's a Templar treasure. Yes. Yeah, so what he's saying here, just some food for thought. Love the show, Joe. So what Joe's saying here is if this were a Templar treasure, there is some reason to believe why all of these things would end up in a Templar treasure chest. Although the Roman coin at that age, um, at that era, I'm not sure how much value that actually had. And if you opened up a treasure chest of those Roman coins, I'm not sure how excited you'd be. Uh, I can't really comment much on the Indian coin. But um, anyway, be that as it may, it's great stuff, Joe. I like the way you're thinking here. And I hope you're correct. My reaction again last week was one of almost despair to the whole idea. Uh, I mean, it's great to find these coins. They can be dated, their origin easily determined. But to get coins from all over the world with almost no connection that I could find to them was just sort of deflating to me. But Joe, maybe there is hope yet. Thank you so much. From Facebook Messenger, here is Mike who writes, Great show. Glad you're back. I think the simplest answer to all the various coins is sailors. They traveled the world, picked up coins from different countries, and lost them on Oak Island. Maybe they like to pinch pennies or some equivalent type of gambling. Do sailors gamble? <laughs> Look forward to your recaps every week. It keeps me balanced on what is real and what is fantasy. Thank you, Mike. Again, just like Joe's email, you guys are kind of restoring my hope into what these coins might mean. Now, the sailor thing could also mean a shipwreck, right? And these things get washed up in uh, storms and end up there. I mean, all of that is possible. And again, I, I don't know how what Roman coins would do with a would how that would be related to a shipwreck from a European ship of that age. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense because again, they didn't have a lot of value. They still really don't if you if you look them up. I mean, they're not these things aren't worth thousands of dollars, and they're pretty easy to acquire. One right, you can go on eBay and find these things. They're not they're not that hard to find. Um, listen, I know that this doesn't prove anything. And sure, maybe there was once a coin collector living on the island, or for all I know, maybe Robert Young planted them here for some reason. Maybe it was aliens. I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, and I wouldn't know. The thing is, they're old. Older the coins, you know, older than coins that we would expect to find here, um, older than the era in which we think the island was owned and inhabited by European folks. So it's interesting. What are they doing here? Again, I don't know, but it doesn't prove anything that there's a you know, a treasure at all, or the Templars were here. It doesn't do any of that, but certainly it is fuel to keep this hunt going because it is fascinating and unexplainable. Now, the only other message I see here was on the Patreon. This is quite a dense one. It's from our friend Scott in Denver, who sent some great screenshots and some more research photos that he found. 
I'll put these photos on the Facebook page so you can pull that up. And it's probably easier for you to follow along while you're pulling that up there because it's going to be hard to understand what he's writing here. But for those of you who do, I'll continue. Scott, you do a, first of all, you do a great job showing us uh, what the pottery might have been that Tony Sampson was seeing underwater off the northern shore of the island last week during his dive. He identified one find as, I think, spongeware, Scott calls it, dating from the mid-19th century. And the other is what he called, quote, some type of blue-edged creamware. The dotted design came in various forms, most likely from the 19th century. Scott also sent some great screenshots of the circular structure on Lot 5, which Laird Niven told us, at least to some extent, was built by Robert Young, the property's former owner. We're going to talk about this even more later on in the episode uh, review this week. And about this, uh, Scott writes, quote, fascinating as to why Robert Young did this and to make it fit with the money pit diameter of 13 feet. Now, Scott, that is incredibly fascinating. It's also puzzling. And I simply cannot think of any good reason why anyone would do this. Certainly not if he indeed thought that there was a feature there that was strange and potentially important archaeologically. It looks like he was building a fire pit, right? I mean, that's what people see here. But right on top of some archaeological find, I mean, that just makes zero sense and even less sense that it's just coincidental, right? It's caused a lot on social media now to question what exactly it was Mr. Young was doing, what his motivations were here, and that's a reasonable question to ask. Again, I'm going to get to that a little bit more during the review. At this point, we're going to have to depend on the archaeologist to help us better understand what's going on here, and we're just not at that point yet. All right, folks, don't forget, if you have any questions or comments, that you want to have read here on a future show, just send them along, Island at gmail.com. It's time now to discuss Season 11, Episode 2 of The Curse of Oak Island called Heavy Lifting. There wasn't a whole lot in this episode, but you know, sometimes I think that is just a product, our, our feeling that way is just a product of, of it being the first one hour episode of the season and the second episode. They always seem to fill the season debut with tons of stuff, right? To get everyone excited for the rest of the year and keep watching. I know some didn't like this episode. Uh, some on the Patreon discussion didn't like it at the end for sure, but I did. I mean, I like them all. That's why I do a podcast, but this one to me, I think opened up some really cool avenues of discussion, and that's always a good thing, at least for me. Um, We only have two areas on the island worth discussing, or that they even showed, so let's start off with the money pit, and honestly, I think this work is what gets some of the complainers to start complaining, right? I understand this work can be, um, what's the word, Um, a bit monotonous, I suppose, but for me, As someone who's been reading about the money pit for decades and decades, I love this stuff because the idea of finding even new searcher stuff in the money pit is fascinating to me. This tunnel project that we're going to discuss here that they've been working on, I really like this and I I can't wait till we can explore this even more. So the episode opens with Scott Barlow, Terry Matheson, and a few more members, Steve Guptill of the cast. And... And they're over at the money pit. They're looking at core drilling samples as they come up. Now, remember, this is work being done before the arrival of the guys from the Dumas Mining Company, before they get to the island and continue their work on the garden shaft. 
It seems as though I think if I remember from last week, they're waiting for some permits to come through. So in the meantime, the team here has decided to continue this exploratory drilling project uh, and try to get some more ID and some more data on the money pit. The guys here are digging a tunnel labeled D5N-26.5, which is way off to the east of where they have been recently drilling. Up to now, work has been done in this sort of blob area, but that, and that's a few feet west of the garden shaft. But this is one. This one here is to the east on the opposite side of the garden shaft. And I can't remember how many we've done these in the past, but certainly this is the first one from over here this year. They're following a possible tunnel, and this one they believe runs underneath the garden shaft. Marty says that any, quote, tunnel that goes under the garden shaft doesn't appear in the record, so that's the one I'm most interested in, end quote. The thought process here is perhaps this tunnel leads from Smith's Cove west to the Money Pit area. Now, Steve, on the Patreon uh, discussion here, put it well when he said, quote, that sort of tunnel trajectory would support the idea of an entry tunnel, in quotes, that came from the shore. That is certainly one possibility, Steve. Um, either way, um, this is a fascinating project to me. I love it. Even if it turns out to be, again, just searcher, it's pretty elaborate and undocumented searcher tunnel, and you just never know what you might learn from the information. Down at 106 feet, they hit wood and are convinced that they're seeing uh, this tunnel here. When you start reading between the lines, it seems the guys believe this tunnel has been filled in, right? Like that's why they're seeing what they're seeing. Now they don't discuss if that filling in was done deliberately or a part of some sort of natural thing that happened or as the result of an accident, like the collapse of the money pit. But if this is a tunnel that is still intact, it couldn't be that it has to be something else. Right. And we also know for sure now with all this, that it's filled with dirt and mud, what they call disturbed earth. Rick says he wants to get these wood samples that they're finding at 106 feet here in this tunnel uh, to be carbon dated quickly as possible. And those dates will be, you know, kind of what determines if uh, this is indeed just another undocumented searcher tunnel, or at least give us a good idea. I've said this many, many times before, but not yet this season. So let me stop here and say this. Um, it's again, it's worth reiterating. It's often glossed over. The fact that we don't know exactly where and what every searcher has done on the island over the 225 plus years of the search. We just don't know. We know a lot of it. At least we think we know a lot of it, but we don't know it all. It's easy to think we do, and it's easy to think that somebody like Charles Barkhouse or Doug Kroll or some other historian, right, knows what every treasure hunter that ever tried to find Oak Island treasure what they did while on the island. But the fact is they do not. And they're learning new stuff all the time. They're not even close to knowing it all. They're constantly finding new searcher stuff that they didn't expect to find. Because listen, the fact is people who hunt for treasure don't always like to let the entire world know what they're doing and how they're doing it, right? That's just part of being a treasure hunter. So it makes a lot of sense. Now, later on in the show, we see another new hole, this one labeled D5N25.5, which looks to be just west of the last hole they dug, just to the left if you're looking at a map, a little bit closer to the garden shaft. Again, they find wood at 107 feet, and that makes Steve Guptill remark that the wood that they're finding here on the east side of the garden shaft uh, matches the elevation of the wood find, found on the opposite side, thus supporting 
that this is all just one tunnel running east to west going just under the garden shaft. I mean, honestly, these Dumas guys cannot get here soon enough because this is really only a few feet under where they stopped last summer. It's very exciting. As Elizabeth said on the Patreon, quote, I hope they continue to follow the tunnel and see where it leads. Uh, me too, Elizabeth, me too. And the Dumas guys, if I'm to understand what they're capable of, are just the right kind of folks to do that. So it's really exciting. Later on, we get to the Interpretive Center. And Emma Culligan is there taking a look at two different wood samples from this core drilling, one from the east side and one from the west. Now, Emma can't date the wood with the tests that she does, but she can check and see if these wood samples do contain traces of precious metal, like the water samples do from the same sort of general area, right? She says there is no sign of gold or silver, but she does detect another metal, an unusual metal for this area called palladium. Now, I'm not a metal expert. So I don't think there is much I can add here on all this, but let me say just a little bit. Palladium is a precious metal, and it is used most often in catalytic converters in your car, which if you don't know, there is this, like, this entire theft racket built around stealing catalytic converters for the purpose of selling off the platinum and the palladium found inside them. It's also used in jewelry and specifically in the process of making what is called white gold, which is a 20th century thing. So don't get too excited about that just yet. Nobody was making white gold in the era of the Templars. Um, it can be found in many places throughout the world, including sizable deposits in Ontario and other spots in North America. So it's close. But as far as I can tell, there isn't any significant quantities ever found or mined in Nova Scotia. Now, archaeologist Moya McDonald does a great job of explaining what this might mean for a treasure hunt on Oak Island. So she says that palladium, and as far as I can tell, this is what she means, is often found in the ground alongside gold and platinum. Even though it was not often purposely used, if at all, for jewelry or those type of things before the 20th century, due to the natural relationship it has with gold and platinum, it may accidentally, or maybe the word is more coincidentally, have been part of the chemical makeup of such things as old gold jewelry or gold coins or things like that, just as a result of where the gold was mined and what other metals were part of the gold when it was you know, refined and made into jewelry. I hope I'm making sense. So the long and short of it here is Moya believes it is possible that a treasure being underground and underwater for centuries could leach some of this palladium into the surrounding area as a result of the chemical breakdown of the gold objects that were part of the treasure. The interesting thing that backs this up a bit is when Emma, who does <laughs> know what she's talking about as opposed to myself who really doesn't says that finding palladium is very unusual for where they are now she doesn't seem to think it's completely unheard of at least that's not the thing i'm getting she's not using things like it's alien to the area or that kind of stuff she's not really relying on it and maybe that's just her personality uh she doesn't just give off that impression but nonetheless she does think that this is strange so i'm with her this is a cool find at least potentially All right, let's go now to the only other area of um, the island that we saw here on episode two of The Curse of Oak Island, and that is Lot 5. Marty comes over to Lot 5 to help Laird Niven and the archaeologists at this circular feature that we discussed earlier in the email section. 
Marty is on, has a small digger with him, and he's there to remove large rocks in an attempt to get to the layer below the rocks. Laird remarks, quote, I don't know why it is filled with rocks. <laughs> and from those photos that Scott sent in, which we talked about in the email section of the podcast, I can't figure that out either, Laird. I mean, in these photos taken by Robert Young, who apparently built much of what we see here in these photos, those rocks are not inside the pit itself. Instead, they're placed around the pit. Um, you know, like again, like it's some sort of fire pit. So how did they end up inside the pit? Did Young fill it in later? I don't know. It's really strange. Now, I've made a couple of... Um, I'm kind of leading the witness here a little bit. So let me stop and read something that Steve wrote on the Patreon discussion, because I think he said it better than than I am laboring to say it here. He said, quote, I don't want to besmirch a guy that may have been legit and is no longer around to defend himself. But I'd throw out there that anything they find on Lot 5 is suspect. I mean, a guy who alters an archaeological feature might also buy coins on eBay and scatter them around his lot. Sorry, but I think it's worth keeping in mind, end quote. Now, Steve, again, I've been beating around that proverbial bush for a couple of weeks now, ever since the reveal of these photos of what this circular feature looked like years ago when Robert Young, you know, created it. But I think I agree with you, and, and I certainly agree with the way you're with your conclusion entirely. Right. So I don't know if Robert Young was doing something untoward here, but it's at least worth exploring, which is what you're saying. Right. Laird says they're looking for the base of a structure here, something underneath what Robert Young did. But one simply has to ask, if Young found something interesting here, a uh, you know an archaeological find, uh, a house, a foundation, whatever it is that, that Laird thinks might be here, why would he do what he did with all of those extremely heavy rocks? Why would he cover it like this or do anything at all besides just dig and excavate it and picture it, you know, take photos of it? It makes no sense to me at all. Also, what he did here with these rocks, especially if he also then filled them in, isn't an easy thing to do, especially for someone who didn't have a house or a garage in the island to wheel out his power tools, right? It was just open land. It's not like he could park his backhoe in a shed. So what is this? And why is Laird so interested in knowing all of this? That's the question that keeps me hanging on because I know from talking to him that Laird is indeed very interested despite what we're learning here. And that alone kind of gives me hope. So I'm not going to besmirch the guy's character, Robert Young's character. I am going to question it until I have reason not to. I think that's the only way to proceed here, you know, at least for the time being. The archaeologists start digging and clearing away the dirt. When Jamie Kuba, one of the archaeologists, pulls out a large piece of pottery, which Laird says is from the 1770s or so. Now the narrator makes a huge deal out of it being potentially from dis before the discovery of the money pit. But honestly, we all know that's meaningless here and it's kind of just sort of sensationalism. But we have to ask again, if Robert Young knew that things like this were laying below the ground in this area, why on God's green earth would he cover it with dozens and dozens of boulders? All right, maybe I'm beating a dead horse, but come on. How does this make any sense, right? Later, we see Gary Drayton and Rick Lagina metal detecting on lot five, and they find an old metal strap. Gary says it could be from a chest or a box. More on that a little later. Gary makes some remark about how it could be related to the circular feature that Laird is working on, and that kind of gave me a little chuckle because I have 
no idea why he would think those two things are related. It certainly doesn't seem to have any any reason to think that other than that there's two weird things here. I, I don't know. Anyway, they also find another artifact, which Gary calls like a fastener of some kind, assuming he means like a nail, right? Later on, blacksmithing expert Carmen Legg arrives in the island at the Interpretive Center wearing a fantastic Indiana Jones slash Josh, Josh Gates style hat to have a look and render an opinion on what some of these Lot 5 artifacts might be. The first thing he looks at is an item we saw last week that appeared to have this sort of metal loop in it. it to me, it looked like a door knocker at first look, right? Or even some sort of like ring bolt thing. We tie boats up to these little kind of boats that are in the uh, in a wharf, right? It's easy enough to, to understand, right? Uh, and it also happens to be one of those things that Emma Culligan said matched perfectly with items found on the property of one William Phipps. More on that in just a second. Carmen says that this piece looks like something that might have been used to tie up a horse, again, or a boat, like I said, or maybe to hoist or lower something heavy, uh, uh, you know, into a hold or into the ground. Of course, getting everyone excited about the possibility that this might be the thing used to lower the treasure underground. Now, I, I know that sounded snarky, but I'm going to not continue down the snark road because due to its connection to William Phipps, there are really some interesting possibilities here. This is an exciting find. Carmen then looks at the pieces found in this episode. One, he says, looks like the broken end of a very old tool, uh, but the other, he says, is a strap. It's what he calls a bow tie strap. According to Carmen, this type of thing was used by the French specifically as sort of a decorative strap on chests or boxes. Again, more excitement ensues and a lot of insinuating that this must have been off the Templar treasure ship or something. I don't know. Now, that's really all for this episode. But I kind of think we need to back up a bit and discuss the most fascinating thing that we found in these last two episodes. Honestly, the one thing that could be one of the more fascinating things ever found in the history of the show, certainly potentially top five. And that is this item found and these items found last year on lot five that match 100%, according to Emma Culligan, in their chemical makeup to items found at the birthplace of William Phipps in Maine. So why is this potentially such a huge deal? Well, Let's talk about William Phipps a little bit, because this is a fascinating dude for sure. Now, William Phipps was born and grew up in Maine, which was part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony of the time in the late 1600s, and could certainly be described, uh, the area he grew up could certainly be described as a frontier, right? At 18, he moved to Boston and became a shipwright, which is just a fancy word for a shipbuilder. He soon married into a wealthy family and then moved back to Maine to build ships along the Sheepscot River, an absolutely drop dead, gorgeous area of mid-coast Maine that I'm very familiar with and has a long history of shipbuilding and, of course, logging as well. Now, shortly after opening shop in Maine, the King Philip's War broke out. This is a war between the colonists and the local indigenous tribes, which turned out to really be a terrible, bloody war, probably the worst conflict of the English colonial period. Now, at the start of the war, William Phipps built the first of his large ships, which he was planning to use, to haul a load of lumber to Boston. He built some smaller ships as well, but he built a couple of big ones. This was the first one he put to sea, and he was going to use it to haul some lumber. 
But when the local Wabanaki tribe attacked this town that he was in and that he lived in, instead of loading it up with lumber, he loaded the entire population of his town onto the ship and all of their stuff and sailed them to Boston. So this made Phipps something of a local hero, right? And a a minor celebrity, but he was about to get much more famous. In Boston, over the next year or two, Phipps became something of a merchant captain, giving up the shipbuilding trade, and instead taking boats and sailing and trading goods up and down the North American coast and down to the Caribbean. So while sailing in the Caribbean, Phipps started to hear stories of shipwrecks of Spanish treasure galleons throughout the area, which must have just been stories you heard in every tavern and pub you could find in all of the Caribbean, right? So he soon turned his attention to treasure hunting and found enough initial success finding some little treasure here and there to gain the backing of some prominent rich folks back in England. Soon he had, from these rich folks in England who were ready to back his treasure hunting, a sort of a well-armed group of ships to take treasure hunting. Because, you know, if somebody's pirates are going to try to take your treasure away after you find it, you got to be able to shoot back. So Phipps now has like two or three multi-gun vessels. And remember, he is a frontier mainer with zero military experience or naval military experience for sure. This guy is just fascinating. Now, in I think 1686, he hit the mother load, right? Finding a huge treasure worth millions from the wreck of a Spanish treasure galleon called the Concepcion. He sailed the treasure back to England, handed a really large amount of it to King James II, who then knighted Phipps, making him, as an interesting little side note, uh, the first ever American-born knight of the realm, or whatever you call it over there. Phipps then soon gained more backing for his treasure exploits, and in 1687, he sailed what was nothing short of an armada of ships back to the Concepcion site to recover the rest of the treasure, which he was sure was down there waiting for him in the stern of the ship, or you know, the rest of the ship that they hadn't uncovered yet. So the king then, well, let me back up because the king also named him the provost marshal of New England, right? All because he found treasure. So this guy at this point is a rock star, right? It's certainly in New England. Now, this is where things kind of get a bit murky. According to Phipps, when they arrived back at the wreck site of the Concepcion, the whole thing was apparently crawling with local treasure hunters and much of the remaining treasure already gone. Uh, Phipps claimed there was, however, a huge treasure still left underwater in the stern of the Concepcion, but it was encased in impenetrable coral and could never be recovered. Phipps then left for Boston to start his new job as provost marshal. This is all happening while back in England, something called the Glorious Revolution was breaking out, basically a war between the Catholic King James II of England and the Dutch King William III, who was married to James's Protestant daughter, Mary. Protestants of England, which was the majority of England, kind of turned to William III to overthrow the Catholic monarch. So in North America, the French colonists who were there decided to try to take advantage of England's issues in this war, this sort of civil war, and allied with the local indigenous tribes of the same area, the Wabanaki in that area, to attack English colonies. So Phipps took part in this sort of North American offshoot of the war, leading local militia on raids of French fortifications. Again, absolutely no military experience, but he does this 
There are a few months within these years that we have no record of where he is. He sort of disappears. Of course, that always helps these sort of stories, right? Sort of perpetrate these theories. And then in 1691, he became incredibly the governor of Massachusetts. And for a variety of reasons that are not really related to the Oak Island theory and I don't want to get into here, he sort of got himself on the wrong side of a few of the uh, bigger English politicians. So he was called back to England to answer for whatever they wanted him to answer for. And during that, in 1695, he got sick and died. So how does this all relate to Oak Island? Now, as mentioned in both episodes this season, there is a theory that suggests Phipps buried some of the treasure of the Concepcion on Oak Island. The show says that the theory belongs to a Freemason named Scott Clark, I think, and they make this big deal about his degree of Freemasonry. I don't know what any of that means, but it really goes back to a book called Oak Island and its Lost Treasure that was written by Graham Harris and Les McPhee and first published in 1999. Now, their theory here about this is very dense. I really suggest you read the book. They've updated it three or four times. There is a lot of history to it and a lot that I'm not going to get into and much of it based on a huge chunk of what we would call circumstantial evidence. But again, Without getting into the political political aspect of it, here is the long and short of what their theory is, right? The, the nickel version. They believe that when he went back the second time, Phipps did, in fact, recover the treasure from the stern of the Concepcion. But for reasons revolving around sort of his changing allegiances during this glorious revolution, he started off being knighted by King James II and then instead siding with William III, he decided not to give James II this treasure, but instead he buried it on Oak Island uh, and then told the king that it was impossible to get because it was encased in coral and taken by other treasure hunters. See where I'm going here? So he buried it on Oak Island and apparently during this burying process on Oak Island, they royally screwed up uh, and and <laughs> while underground doing all of this, which made it virtually impossible for Phipps and his cohorts to go back and retrieve. So they basically cleaned up after themselves and left the treasure there to not be recovered by anyone since they couldn't recover it themselves. And also the possibility that the French then take over Nova Scotia and find the treasure. So you get where I'm going here. But Harrison McPhee also believed that William III, who, by the way, won the war uh, and his heirs in the years after knew of this treasure and apparently sent more than one clandestine and unsuccessful expedition to Oak Island to try and recover the treasure. And therefore, that would explain many of the different types of things found uh, on the island that date from the middle 1700s, things like the U-shaped structure, the wharf in Smith's Cove, the box drains, all that kind of stuff, they say was actually the attempt, the unsuccessful attempt to recover the treasure by people who, in the know who worked in the English government and knew what uh, Phipps had done. It's a fascinating theory, uh, but one that admittedly seemed for most of my time reading about Oak Island, very far fetched and based on a lot of, oh, what we call supposition or, or circumstantial evidence. That is <laughs> until Emma Culligan told us about items on Oak Island matching perfectly with items from Phipps's boyhood home in Maine. Now that is fascinating. 
All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can really help the show out by becoming a patron. If you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. If you want to make a one-time donation, you could do that via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. If you want to help out the podcast in another way, then please do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or any kind of positive rating on any other places you get your podcasts. I'm not sure how to do that in all of them. Thanks to everyone who did that already and has done it. really do appreciate it. helps get the word out on the show, and that's always a good thing. Thanks for taking the time to do that. You can also follow the show on Facebook. We are at Digging Oak Island. Put a lot of pictures there. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you do send me an, an email or a direct message on Facebook, I may just answer it here in the podcast. So if you don't want your message read to everyone, make a note of that for me. Well, hey, it is crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.